Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with our awesome sponsors, Najahi Events and Najahi Tribe. Go check out Najahi Tribe if you want to learn new skills that you can apply to your business and get exponential growth going forward. On today's episode, a very special guest, a young lady by the name of Katie Piper, who in 2008 had acid thrown in her face by her boyfriend. And she then went on to have, I think, nearly 300 operations to try and deal with the damage that the acid had caused. She's been through horrific experiences in ways that most of us could probably never imagine. And I'm really excited to talk to her about where she was, where she is, what she's doing going forward, and the impact she's having on so many people. This lady is a best-selling author of not one, but eight books, which is incredible. And so please welcome the very talented, very gifted, and very positive Katie Piper. Well, there we go, ladies and gentlemen, she's here with us, the awesome, the incredible Katie Piper. Katie, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So my fellow podcaster, I'm going to say to start with. Okay, that's, yeah, that's true. I've got a podcast series, um, which in lockdown has gone on to Zoom, just like this. Um, It's called Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. Um, And as the title suggests, it's not necessarily celebrities. There are some celebrities on there just by coincidence, because they face some kind of adversity. But it's actually unknown names um, that have lived through trauma, trials, tribulations, and they've, it's not about fluffy endings and happy ever after, it's about coping mechanisms, it's about uh, success and how that actually looks different for other people. How do you pick a guest for a podcast? Because you and I will be going through probably similar processes. And do people say to you, oh, what about this person or that person? Or do you sit and, you know, come across people by accident and go, do you know what? What an interesting story. Or how does it work for you? We have lots of constructive disagreements with the money people (laughs) who who want people that are commercial with lots of followers and who people will download, um, which, of course, is important in business. Um, but also I don't want the people that just do the rounds of everyone's podcast promoting a book, promoting a single, you know, I want real stories and sometimes it's really hard to find real stories because sometimes the most admirable thing about somebody is they're just in a pocket of the world somewhere getting on with their life after this phenomenal thing. So they don't really do press and PR. Um, So a lot of the people I find in real life on the street, in restaurants, through my charity, um, I suppose because what I'm known for is my own trauma, a lot of those people approach me on Instagram and Twitter. So I'll I'll kind of find people in that way. Um, I do a lot of reading. So I, I read up on people, then I stalk them on the internet and find them and ask them to come on my podcast and usually they haven't ever really considered doing something like that but I like the raw people like that interesting I'm, I think I'm a little bit the same you know um, I've, got, I've got a guy I'm interviewing later on today by the name of Michael Francis have you ever heard of him I recognize the name okay so Michael Francis was an Italian mafia gangster okay so so he was he was he his character was in um the goodfellas movie right okay and he he was in the mob uh, and for for many many years and he was the first person to leave the mafia in new york and essentially go straight and he's now a motivational speaker 
Oh, wow. He'd be interested. Yeah. And so he's deeply in touch with his faith. And so he speaks a lot at churches and stuff. Um, but the, the, he talks about why he didn't, he didn't, he didn't get, you know, what is it they call it when they're going to, they're, they're going to kill them. I can't remember what it is in the mafia, but they, when he, when he, we didn't have a mark on him or anything. The reason they said it happened is because he didn't make any enemies while he was there. He said it was organized crime. There was no, none of the drug scene or anything else. They were into shipping fuel and stuff like that. So he said, when I left, I left clean. And, and luckily ever since it's been okay for me, but he's going to have a really interesting story. And so when you see people that have got interesting stories, I'm like, oh, because you know, this, this all started for me from, remember years ago with Michael Parkinson on the TV when we used to watch that. Yeah. Okay. We used to watch Parkin. I used to be screaming at the TV going, ask him about this ask him about that you know <laughs> you know and in in, in in latter times um what's it what's the irish guy's name um on the bbc yeah graham norton so graham it's like and I, I watch graham norton and jonathan ross as well i'm like yeah but don't talk about the movie they're promoting ask them about what happened here and what happened there and they don't and it just like i want to know that the real stories i want to know really what what's going on for these people and so this kind of stuff fascinates me because i think that you know whether you're tom cruise or, or, or matthew mcgonaghy you've got a story there's something in there away from this kind of pr glitzy stuff that's on the surface about your real life and that's really what I've always been fascinated in learning. Okay, good. Um, before we go any further, let's just dig into a little bit about your past for my audience that might not know who you are. Just just tell us, just briefly, what happened to you and how you overcame it. Okay, so I, I became known to the public because I was a victim of a violent crime um, here in London. So this was 12 years ago in 2008. Um, I... Uh, it, I mean, the reason why it's become so known is it is almost unbelievable and kind of what you'd see in a film or, or a book. I met a guy and began to date him in the very early stages um, of dating, like we're talking two, three weeks. And um, I decided he wasn't right for me. And when that happened, he attacked me, held me hostage, uh, beat me up and raped me. I remember getting away from that attack ironically feeling relieved that it was horrific and traumatic but it was over two days later i stepped out of my flat in north london i lived in golders green and an unknown man to me came up to me with a coffee cup so i went to give him some money thinking he was begging but he threw um industrial strength sulfuric acid into my face and he was kind of closer than arm's length so i was left with quite life-changing uh, permanent injuries. So initially I was blind in both eyes. Now I'm blind in my left eye and I've got 75% sight in my right eye. I am still on the roads driving, so watch out. Um, and I've had, you know, I had the obvious injuries that the media would pick up on in um, you know, my whole face, neck, chest, arms, hands, were all third degree burns through all layers of the skin, the fat, some parts of the muscle and some of the skeleton was affected too but it was more functional issues for me like obviously beauty is the surface but i swallowed acid so i had a lot of problems gastro problems with my stomach my esophagus a lot of problems with speech and swallowing and eating i had to be fed through a tube in my stomach for three years um and a lot of problems with my respiratory system because obviously my nose was melted and that affected a lot of my breathing i lost my ear um so yeah, a lot of functional issues, but then I suppose um, why my story became, you know, it was shocking, so that's why it 
appearing in the news, but then I went on afterwards to have a career that I'd been more aspiring to pre-attack. Um, and I went on to fulfill a lot of my goals and aspirations beyond my original goals in TV presenting, kind of diverse modeling um, and just writing books and, yeah, it's that's my Wikipedia page, basically. <laughs> it's quite hard to explain what happened to me because I can't even quite believe it myself when I say it out loud. I look, I I've met people before. I had I've had two guests on my show. One guy called Nick Vojtic, who's got no arms and no legs. Have you ever heard of him? I, I think I watched both videos. Yeah, okay. So he, he, he's, his, his tagline is no arms, no legs, no worries. And last week I had on the show a lady called Jessica Cox and Jessica was born with no arms and she's, she, she's the first woman ever to fly an aeroplane with no arms and so she's a pilot and a, a fourth damn black belt in karate, uh, taekwondo um, uh, all with no arms. And so, oh. yeah, I mean, like, yeah, mega, mega to, to see what they've both achieved. But what I found, particularly with Nick, when I sat with him, as I was talking to him, we, we were literally in the same room together, very close, and he was looking at me. And no matter what was coming out of his mouth, what was coming out of his eyes was, and your problem is? Oh, really? Okay. And so it was almost like, I, it, I don't have problems. All right. I, I, I don't. Nick, Nick has problems. And if he can stay motivated, inspired, positive, trying to change the world, change people, inspire people, trying to help and give. If he can do that, then then I, I haven't got any problems. And so my sense is that with people that have been through the journey like you have, and I'm sure you've met some other people that have had similar experiences, you what you've been through is greater than what most people on the planet could even conceive, let alone experience. And the fact that you're so positive and you look forward with 99.99% of what you do and who you are suggests to me that people, when they meet you, don't have a problem anymore. Because if you could be like that and be positive, you can go through that and be positive, then surely they can. Is that right or not? It might be how some people feel, but I don't necessarily encourage this because I think that's being dismissive of people's problems. So everything's relative. So I, I run a charity now. I set up a charity for other burn survivors. If somebody comes to my charity for help who's burnt their hand on the oven, we will help them. If somebody comes to my charity whose face was melted in an acid attack, we will help them because the scars that may affect my life may not have an effect on yours and vice versa. Some people with one scar on their hand genuinely don't want to leave the house, have a sexual relationship or pursue a career. And that's because it, that's how relative it is to them. So if it destroys their mental health, then it's still a big issue to them. So I don't want other, and actually I went through this awful stage of in the beginning when people would come and visit me, they would make the most inane chit chat with me about the weather because they felt too embarrassed to talk about everyday problems. And I just thought like, God, please talk to me like an adult. Please tell me how shit your boyfriend is. Please tell me um, how your hair's gone wrong today because I want to be normal and involved in this chat because I can handle it. Um, so yeah, I think we can't be dismissive of people's problems. And it's like what's happening at the moment of, this kind of we're all in it together. Mm, we're all on the same ocean, but some of us are in better boats at the moment. So whilst everything's relative, we're all having a different experience of this problem, but that doesn't mean anybody's is less valid. Okay, that's a really it's a really fair point in fairness. Now so so people can understand what you've done since a, a bit better. Look, I've written a book. 
Yeesh, man, that was hard work. I, I think that's got to be the toughest thing that I've ever been involved with is writing a book. It was painstaking and you know for all of the people that are listening to this that have read my book trust me okay for whatever you've paid for it it hurt like hell to write that book I'd have rather been in the gym for all that time under duress and pressure but you've written like it's like it's almost written you've almost written a library what are you up to eight or nine what is it now eight I have written another one that's not been published yet but I've just kind of written it for myself but I'm, I'm gonna try and publish it so yeah eight so far um Okay, not not okay. Hold on a minute. Why? <laughs> I, I don't get it. Why they say everybody's got a book in them, don't they? Everyone's got a book in them, and it's like okay. And you know, right? Everyone has got a book in them. Yeah, whether they ever make a book or not is another matter. But everyone's got a book in them. You, come on, what's the matter with you? You into it that much? Eight and twelve years. So that's been over a decade. So all right, rub my face in it a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, actually, it was a psychologist that told me to write um, because I was having um, psychology twice a week. I had very good parents who I could confide in. But I think all of us have our deepest, darkest thoughts that we aren't necessarily going to act on, but we need to express them. And even if you've got a good support network, you still don't want to burden people with absolutely every single inner dialogue you have. And my psychologist said to me, um, because in the beginning, you know, you go through like this range of emotions. And I always think the shortest emotion you go through, that it's probably the deepest, but it's the shortest, is anger. And then anger can turn to resent, resentment, bitterness. And I was experiencing that quite heavily at the beginning. So she was like, you should write. So not necessarily to commercialise and make a book, but write letters to people, put them in envelopes, address them, rip them up, throw them away because that helps with release, it helps with closure, it helps you process stuff, it gives you the answers yourself, you know, so I wrote letters, I wrote journals, um, and I, and actually when I started, I, it was, it came out ferociously and furiously, and it was really old school with a pen and a paper, it wasn't kind of on a laptop, and then um, I started to write for purpose, because in the first few years, I was on uh, Job Seekers Allowance, Disability Benefit, Friends Dropped Off, absolutely no love life at all so I was quite lonely um, and I started writing my first autobiography and um, I was anonymous in the UK for the first year because I didn't want to jeopardize my legal trial um, and because it was a sexual attack you're allowed am anonymity did I say that right I never say that right I can't say um, that word either <laughs> so I was literally girl a in the press and because I wasn't famous it was only a small article when my case was reported so I would write and write under this girl A name and every Friday for something to do and part of my physio, I'd walk down to the local post office and post this massive manuscript to publishers and I would just get either silence or a template rejection letter, which was typed with my name and bio at the top. Um, so it was because I wasn't known, nobody cared, nobody wanted to invest in my story. Um, so yeah, it, it was just like a massive hobby that gave me a lot of time um, to get good at it. And then when I made a documentary in the UK, um, which I thought nobody would watch because nobody had heard of me, and it ended up being like one of the most viewed documentaries on Channel 4. It's sold, I think, to every continent in this country. I was like, right, I'm going to rewrite to those publishers. And then I got not a great deal commercially, um, but I took it anyway. And then that went on the Sunday Times bestseller list at number one. 
And I was just like, oh my God, I only got a B in English and GCSE. I didn't even do A-levels. I went to the University of Life. Um, I don't even know the grammatical difference between there and there. <laughs> um, and then I was like, right, now I'm in the driving seat. Now they can come to me and pitch. And then I had multiple publishers that then pitched to me rather than me pitching to them. And then I could negotiate and then I could move away from my story and go into a genre of self-help rather than autobiography. And then it, it just turned into a, a career that I love. So how much, when it comes, to, it comes to books, over the years of writing those books, have you sat down and said, I want to write a book about this? Or as a publisher said, actually, we'd like you to write about that? Um, a bit of both. So I will take in stats of social media and what gets um, good interaction and what works for me and what is my existing clientele. And I will present to them why I think this will work. They will look at current climate and book sales and what's saturated and what's not. And we will collaborate together. Um, but it always has to be true to, because my brand is basically me and it's so authentic that if it wasn't true to me, then it wouldn't sell anyway. So it's quite good like that. It's not like being a singer and getting pushed into making pop music when you love rock music. Um, so, so yeah, it's always authentically me. And even when I don't have a deal, I write. So like, obviously, like everyone, everywhere I go, I have a device. So suddenly I'm running and think of stuff and I put it in my notes section or I meet someone and they say something to me and I put it in my notes section. And then each Friday, I just write it up into documents on my laptop because um, things just always come to me all the time and I think about things. Do you think you're typically a creative person? Yeah, definitely, because I was just a nightmare at school, you know, like disruptive, uh, short attention span, thrill seeker, risk taker, um, which in the 90s would have been seen as, well, you won't be successful because the only successful people are academic people that go to university. Um, so, which, which was kind of true back then because we didn't have the internet or social media. Entrepreneurs were kind of middle-aged men with grey hair who had rich parents. You know, it wasn't... <laughs> well, look, I actually thought you were my age, okay? So that's a compliment. Hit the bed. Middle-aged men with grey hair. <laughs> Women in business wasn't even something that I knew about when I was deciding what to do with my life. Um, so, yeah, you know, I wasn't really on paper ever seen that I would have a bright future, particularly. You, when you think about being an entrepreneur, what does that word mean to you? I don't relate to it because I don't think I'm an entrepreneur. So I'm somebody that had everything taken away from me in a few seconds. And now the world is catching up with me because of Corona. People are like, one day this was my life and the next day it was all gone. And I'm like, welcome to the party. This is what happened to me. And, you know, as a young woman, I was 24. I lost my looks. I became registered disabled. Um, I lost my career. I lost the chance to have what most women aspire to of a marriage and, and kids and stuff like that. So I don't see myself as a businesswoman or entrepreneur. I see myself as somebody that through fear realized I need to create stability. I, I need to create safety and I cannot trust or rely on anybody. And fear made me really productive and it made me just rely on myself and never to look for anyone else or hope that I'll meet a husband or a business partner or that things will fall on my lap. And 
yeah, I mean, it just made me work really hard. I've always uh, had a good work ethic. My dad's self-employed. My mum's a school teacher. And I worked in Tesco when I was at college. Um, I worked cash in hand cleaning cars before I got my NI number. So I don't come from a wealthy family. So I've always understood I could have anything I want if I worked hard for it. Hmm. And when you look when you look at people that are that have gone out, I mean, when I when I grew up being an entrepreneur was actually not called entrepreneur. It was called um, one man band. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that, that's what it was called back then. And so what do you do? For, I'm, I'm self-employed. I've got a one man band. And if, and if you grew your business, it would be cottage industry. And that's that's kind of what it was until it became something more. But this word became very sexy, particularly in America. They don't even say it the same way as us entrepreneur. How do Americans say it? Alicia, how do Americans say entrepreneur. entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds sexy, yeah. <laughs> and so, and so, but it, but it kind of like, it, it became very sexy and, and everybody going out and starting their own business. And I think what people got sucked into was this whole uh, potential in their mind of taking shortcuts to get rich quick. And it was like the internet gave this opportunity. You know, you don't need to put all the hard work, the effort in. You don't need to go from A to Z through all the letters. You can go straight to Z. You can miss out the letters. And 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 there's been a lot of people out there promoting laptop lifestyles, and you know, and run your businesses this way and that way. But for me, becoming successful in business meant massive sacrifice like massive sacrifice 18 hour days six sometimes seven days a week um dealing with stuff in in financial situations that were extremely challenging flying by the seat of my pants um legal stuff i didn't understand signing agreements that came back to haunt me um being stitched up by people that you thought you trusted and all this kind of stuff along the way and so it's and and i find anyone that's had had success has had to work really hard and i think that your books are a good example of this because I appreciate how hard it is to write a book because I've written one. I couldn't imagine how much of my life it would take to write two, let alone 102 like you. So, <laughs> so, so you've put a, a shit ton of hard work into getting to where you've got right now. Do you, do, you, do you think of it like that? Do you think it was hard work or do you just think you were just doing your thing? Um, a bit of both because I enjoy working. And I think if I'm honest, in the early stages of my career and recovery, it was all I had and I was quite lonely. And my work was my boyfriend, my best friend, my purpose. And I felt very ashamed of being on benefits as somebody that had worked on my life and I felt very determined to provide for myself. So it was like, not necessarily a status thing, but like a pride thing of like, I will work really hard. I will not be labeled by society as, you know, the word disabled, like it suggests you're not able and you're somehow not part of society anymore. And my attack was not a car accident or a house fire, it was premeditated with a lot of intention. And one of those intentions was to keep me alive and not kill me, but push me out of society. And I just couldn't, I had to write the ending of my own story, quite literally, you know. Um, so 
yeah, it is hard. And, you know, I have had, I have suffered for how hard I've worked. Um, and then later in life, when I became a mum, you know, I never, maternity leave, what is that? You know, I had cesarean and woke up and logged on <laughs> in the hospital. Um, you know, it, but then also you do get, like some of the stuff they sell you online about being an entrepreneur is true in that, you know, if I want to take the day off to go to sports day, I do go to sports day. But then the day that sports day was, I'll be up till 2 a.m. online, like catching up because I can't just like leave it and hope someone else in my office does it, you know. So it takes a certain type of person that's not afraid to work really hard and be exhausted and has good energy levels and, and is passionate and lo loves what they do. Like it sounds cheesy, but I do think when you love what you do, it isn't the same as that label of working. It's still exhausting and a lot of sacrifices, but I don't call it work in that sense. Yeah, I completely agree with that. When you love what you do, it's no problem at all. You, you, you don't suffer anything. You enjoy it, so you embrace it. And we're yeah. in it's you isn't it like i don't stop work at five and then i'm someone else like this is me all the time it finds you that's exactly what it does yeah you're right 80 percent of the population get up every day with a job they hate which breaks my heart it really does. i've never done that ever like even when i went to tesco i bloody loved it because i used to like get so excited about if i work on sundays i get time and a half and then if i move up to working on the tunnel i get extra money and like i've never hated my job and as soon as i have i've got out Okay, that's really good. So <clears throat> let's just go through this. You're, you're a mum, you've got two kids? I've got two children. I've got two daughters, one age six, one age two. Okay, six-year-old and a two-year-old. Okay, so my daughters are the same time apart. You're married, you've got two kids. You've, you've obviously got, uh, what, three nannies and two au pairs, a housekeeper. <laughs> no, do you know what? It's really funny, actually. So we used to have childcare, um, so nothing like living. We used to have a childminder that would come to our house. And then um, she actually left just before Corona when we didn't know Corona was happening because um, my youngest started a nursery um, and then my husband's self-employed as well. So between me and my husband, um, we were able to kind of just manage school pickups together. We used like sports clubs, um, musical instrument classes after school and stuff. We have a cleaner that comes to the house um, one day a week. Obviously, she's gone now with lockdown. Um, but yeah, apart from that, we don't we don't have any living domestic help or anything. Um, so no, no butler. We kind of equal, like I said to my husband, just because I'm female doesn't mean I'm doing like traditional female roles that we can share those roles. Now you do a number of different things. So just to make sure I've got it right. Okay. Apart from being a, a, a celebrated author with more best-selling books, I hate your guts. You're better than me than anybody else. Um, and you know, you, you're obviously a TV celebrity. And so you're on TV a lot. You present, um, you run your charitable foundation. Um, Rob told me you got into the property marketplace as well. And so that was something that you in, uh, started to get involved with as well. So, so what out of all of those things that you do, if I say to you, Katie, your diary's clear for the day. Okay, take me out for the day. Let's go do what you love to do the most when it comes to your work. What would you choose to do? Um, I love the result of the writing because people connect with me. So you're just out having a coffee and someone comes up to you who you couldn't judge at all of what's happened to them. You don't know. And they say, I was sexually abused as a child. I've never told anyone. I read your book and I started therapy. And, you know, this is like a six foot tall bloke who you just wouldn't know that. And you just feel like, wow, I'm so glad we connected without connecting and now we've connected. And it's just like amazing, that kind of feedback. 
when I make documentaries, equally, I then get to meet people um, from all walks of life that I wouldn't get to meet. And I, just as an inquisitive, nosy kind of person, you know, I love that. And I, I'm a viewer of documentaries as well as a maker of them. I, I'm really interested in other people's lives. Um, but then the kind of person I was as a, as a young girl, you know, working in supermarkets and cleaning offices and stuff, I love my kind of commercial side of all the products. So I have product ranges of prams, uh, high chairs, um, clothing ranges, um, all sorts of different stuff that I, I sell. So I really enjoy like board meetings, business meetings, numbers. And then with the charity, I get to meet people that are like Katie on day one, who are like suicidal, don't see the future. And then eight years later, I go to their wedding and I sit in the church and I'm like, I knew they could do it. I knew they had it in them. And I feel so happy that like society hasn't won because being burnt and disfigured doesn't make you ugly, doesn't make you unattractive, doesn't make you unemployed. And I get all this kind of satisfaction. So it's really hard to pinpoint one thing that I love because it sounds like I do lots of different jobs, but I feel like they're just one thing. And, and they're all to do with like empowerment. And, you know, even if they're commercial, they still empower the people that buy into it. Mm, understand that. Makes sense. Okay, let me just come away from that and just start talking about a couple of things that I find that um, a lot of people are dealing with right now. We're obviously coming out the back of the pandemic and there's been huge numbers of people either being made redundant or losing their jobs, self-employed people not even being able to get furlough money and stuff like that in the UK in particular. Here in Dubai, there isn't such a thing as furlough. You, lo you lose your job, you go. You don't, you don't have any, there's no private, uh, there's no free healthcare, there's no free schooling, everything, everything is paid. So there's a, there's a lot of people going through a, a lot of tough stuff right now. You know, men that were providers for their family that now are in situations where they don't know what the future holds. Someone who has spent £100,000 training to be a commercial pilot and that now has got no chance to work as a pilot. Um, just, just so many, so many stories. You know, when you look at the numbers, they're, they're catastrophic all over the world. Depression is a real, a real thing. And, you know, when I was younger, I was born in 1970. When I was younger, it was kind of like if you were feeling down or you were down, it was like, cheer up, come on shake it off, shake it off, cheer up, you'll be fine. And I've, I've had my own problems over the years with depression. I believe I'm bipolar. I've never been officially diagnosed, but I believe I am. I've got attention deficit disorder. So I was the, everything that you described yourself as, as a kid at school, I was that person. Now, I, and, and, and my motivations, and most of my listeners know this, but my motivation and drive in life came from being bullied at school. And so I was, I was bullied quite badly at school. And ever since, even, even to this day, not so much, but even to this day, there's me wanting to prove these people wrong and get one up on them. And I met them. I met a lot, the three of them that were involved in that when I was about 21 years old. And I was already doing okay for myself then. And obviously their attitudes changed and they saw that I was doing okay. Um, but it, but that that wasn't enough for me. It's like this this something built into my brain in subcapacity that makes me want to prove to these people how you know that that you, you should never have done this to me, or I'll, I'll, I'm better than you, or I will beat you. Now there's an element of me that's very competitive anyway, so that's probably put together. But I have that, so I'm I, I'm actually really grateful that I experienced that because it helped drive me to become the person I am today. 
so I look at the lockdown and I'm like, right, lockdown, okay, coronavirus, problem, start thinking of solutions. Start thinking of what you have to do to move forward. Start thinking about how, how you pivot, you know. All of the speaking I do on stage and all of the coaching that I do in companies ha- stopped literally overnight. And so everything went on to Zoom. And so, you know, the first couple of days it was like, oh, this is quite good, isn't it? Like I spoke to you earlier before we started. So I'm on I was like, I was doing selfies. Look, I'm on Zoom, <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, and and but I I had to start thinking very quickly about how I was gonna gonna be continue to create revenue in my business in ways that I wasn't able to before. So I'm lucky. I consider myself lucky, but there's a lot of people out there that the world's coming to an end. Yeah, it's a very real thing and we shouldn't be dismissive of anybody's situation. Um, And I suppose that happened to me those 12 years ago. Um, I just woke up in a coma, from a coma, and was like, okay, I'm in intensive care. Um, Didn't think about the outside world for a long time. When I left um, hospital, like... Three months later, I realized my car, which was a Ford Fiesta, had been taken to a compound and scrapped because obviously the people that towed it didn't know I was in a coma. My apartment um, was rented. I never got the deposit back um, or the you know the upfront uh, bit that I'd given. Most of my items had been stolen or taken by the police as evidence. And my only qualification was a beauty therapist and my hands were burnt and my face was burnt and I was blind. So I knew I couldn't work in the beauty industry or presenting or modeling. And I hadn't even been successful in presenting and modeling before. So I very much started from the beginning then. And it's really hard, but it is possible to to rebuild. But it doesn't mean it's an overnight thing or it's easy. And even now, you know, I'm extremely privileged compared to some people. So when this lockdown happened, I had moments where, you know, I was like, oh great, I get to hang out with all of my kids and, and make bread from scratch and all these kind of lovely middle class things that you get to do in a lockdown. But I still had really bad moments of anxiety, depression, some PTSD creeping back in because it was familiar ground. Um, and I think it's you've got to be honest about that because it isn't all just kind of exercising and playing Scrabble and stuff. Like there's very real threats that are hanging over your head of how am I going to provide? How am I going to keep up with my outgoings? Can I reinvent? Can I make a new career at this age and in this position? And I hand on my heart believe yes. I think, you know, the only thing that can't be replaced and the most valuable currency is health. You know, like when everything happened to me, all I thought was, please let me get sight back in just one eye because that's the game changer in the quality of life. Everything else, God, I'll rebuild it, but I can't, do, I can't do that for my sight, you know? And I even thought in lockdown, when I had some pretty hairy moments of losing clients and contracts, I thought, okay, worst case scenario, we sell this house. Probably won't be able to sell this house because not many people will be buying houses. So we, maybe we get this house repossessed. We move into a flat. Honestly, the kids would find that so exciting. They wouldn't give a shit. You know, they'd be like, we live in a flat. This is so exciting. We don't have any stairs. We live on one level. And yeah, they'd probably have to leave their school. They probably wouldn't care because kids adapt eventually. Um, And we'd probably start all over again at a completely different level. But so what? 
like um, someone wouldn't have thrown acid in our face, you know? And it's and it's and it sounds really like harsh and crude for me to say that, but until you've nearly died, you won't have that perspective. Or until you've lost somebody close to you, you won't have that perspective. And you know, I nearly died three times, okay? First time on the high street, the acid hit me. I assumed he'd thrown petrol and flipped a match because it was so hot. So I thought I was a massive fireball. I thought I was gonna die. Uh, second time when I woke up in ICU in the coma, they said that I wasn't going to live and that I should give video evidence for the police to use in the trial because I'll probably be dead by the time it goes to trial. Third time, a year later, I had all this problem with scar tissue and my esophagus. Um, they went in to do a procedure to, to tear the scar tissue. They tore the esophagus by accident and I got emphysemia and heart went, and air went into my heart and into my lungs. And I was already a mum by then, so I thought I was going to die then. Every single time when you nearly meet death, you just think about all the things you didn't do because you didn't believe in yourself or you thought you had loads of time to get those things done. And at each point when I met that moment, I didn't actually realise I was being given the gift of coming back and doing it all over again. Because most of us, when we meet our maker, we have all those regrets and we don't get to come back. So I, I actually had this... Thing was like I've seen everything. I've kind of come out of body, seen it, and I'm coming back to do it all again. I'm not. I'm not going to obsess over all those things that you don't worry about on your deathbed. So, as scary as Corona was, that was the perspective I had, and I still got depressed and still got anxious. But that was the perspective I would take myself back to, and I felt like, look, if my marriage suffers and it's hard for us and we divorce because of all this, the marriage was based on money. It was a pointless relationship anyway. The kids will always be oblivious to this kind of stuff because, you know, my childhood was rural, it wasn't wealthy, and I just, my best memories of playing in fields, climbing up trees, getting dirty, like stuff that doesn't cost money. You know, God, you sound like somebody that I know. Do you know who she sounds like? She sounds like Nick Yaris. So uh, there's, a guy inter there's a guy I interviewed called Nick Yaris, who I think you should interview. Nick, Nick was on death row for 22 years for a crime he didn't commit. Oh, wow. Okay. And... I'm going to write this name down now. Yeah, but I'll, I'll send you his details. I'll make the introduction for you. Nick, Nick was on my show twice because his story was that compelling. Um, yeah. the, my audience were in tears, like tears. But it was like everything he went through, the first few years in prison, he was in prison and they weren't allowed even to speak. It was silence. Um, you know, he, he was the, they found that he was one of the first people to be tested for DNA evidence. And when he was tested, um, it, it took a further 10 years to get him out of prison, even though the proof was he wasn't even there. He, had not, he didn't even know the person that he's supposed to have raped and murdered. He didn't even know her. And so he was the wrong person, wrong place, wrong time, all that kind of stuff. And so his mindset's very similar to yours. It's like, this is the situation I'm in. Okay, yes, there's things that are tough. Yes, there's things that are challenging. Yes, okay, but he ha his life is full of gratitude. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And because he wasn't in a near-death experience like you, but over his shoulder every day was the fear that he was going to be asked what his last meal was um, before he gets put in that chair. And so, I mean, gosh, how harrowing that could be. And when you meet people like that, you forgive them like I, like everyone would or should. And, and like I'm getting to know you now, Katie, but like you, nobody 
can't forgive you for anything you think because of what you went through once all those years ago. Like him, nobody, if, if he turned out to be a different person to the person he is, I, I, can't, I, I can't have an issue with that because I couldn't possibly comprehend 22 years on death row, okay? And you know, when he came out of prison, it was, he was in the state of Pennsylvania. It was the only state in America where you can't sue the prison system. So he left prison without a penny, okay? Even people that come out on parole, they get job seekers allowance, they get somewhere to live. He had, he had nothing and he couldn't sue the prison system. So 22 years from the age of 20 to the age of 20, 20 to 42 is in prison. He moved to the UK to Watford, fell in love with a girl, <laughs> which, is, which is mad as well. But anyway, so, so I, 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 when I see that, when you tell me this kind of stuff, it's like, yes, I get you. Wait, do you... Do you when you meet other people that have had similar experiences to you, do you did you coach them? Do you mentor them? Do you counsel them? Do you do you, do you, do you just listen to them? How, how do you give people that are struggling hope? I listen and I share experiences um, because also the truth about the world is a lot of people are shallow and it isn't as easy of be positive and people will accept you, be positive and everything goes away and you'll be a success. And, you know, I'm very much, you know, 12 years on from my injuries. And in the first five years, it was impossible to get employed. I had to be self-employed. It was impossible to try and date guys. They were not interested. You know, lots of things were not accessible. So I had to say, if you don't want me and I can't access this, I'll build my own. I'm not going to wait for you to accept me. And now, you know, um, I'm, I've had a lot of treatment. Um, a lot of time is a good healer. And I see a lot of those shallow people coming back because on the surface, things are okay. And, you know, you get to see the nature of, of some people and, and it helps you be a much better judge of, of character and, you know, quality and not quantity in your life of people and, and friends so yeah I try and be a realist with the people um, that I mentor and I try and help them uh, through the charity financially emotionally because that that's what you need at the beginning and you need consistency and stability and no judgment and you know I don't, I don't believe in kind of being like sort of standing in front of people being like you've got to become a millionaire and make a success on this tragic tragic story because life's not like that and and sometimes if you have a massive car accident and get 90 percent burns hard at first and you know it's a massive milestone to just wake up and shower some people don't shower for two years through depression you know so it's about celebrating your victories your milestones you um you were on strictly come dancing weren't you I was dreadful, yeah. <laughs> no rhythm. Uh, there you go. That's one of my failings. Terrible. No rhythm at all. So you so had to t- <laughs> tell me how did that happen? And what did you think when they first asked you? Did you first go, holy macaroni, what the hell? Uh, or were you excited? They asked me every year for a long time. Um, and I always said, no, I was either pregnant or the baby was young or if I was filming a series, we were traveling abroad for filming. Um, so and I was in an exclusivity with Channel 4 for like seven years. Um, so when I finally decided, right, I want to work with other channels, you know, Channel 4 have been great to me. They're really about diversity and inclusion. They let you make really kind of edgy topics of really documentaries and stuff. So I had been a, a great time with them, but I thought, right, I'm going to leave Channel 4 and go completely freelance like, in terms of telly. And then Strictly came back again and asked me, and I thought, you know what, maybe it's the right time. 
like my baby was, it was two years ago, so my baby was eight months old or something. So I thought, yeah, you know, motivation to lose a bit of weight, get into the lid hard. Um, and I, I said to the producers, I cannot dance and I'm blind in one eye, so I can't even see this side, you know. Uh, and they were like, you'll be fine. That's what the show's all about. Everyone loves someone who can't dance. You know, it's fine. And then the other people in it was like a pussycat doll and like someone else. And I was just like, oh my God, this is going to be horrific. <laughs> um, but saying that, it was a good laugh. And actually, you know, I don't want to fall into the habit of only doing stuff that I know I'll be really good at because I think that's a bit of a plateau. Yeah. And I don't, don't really learn anything. So I probably was the worst in the show, which I think was quite good for me. Yeah. Did you had fun, yeah? I had fun. The guy I danced with was really nice. And I'm quite a shy, like, it's funny. People think of me as a confident person, but I'm quite shy. Um, and I was just like, oh, my God. I'm, like, pressing up against him. I can feel his balls on my leg. Like, I feel so awkward. <laughs> <laughs> so embarrassing. I don't even know how to talk to guys. Like, I'm, just, you know, I'm like an old mom. I'm just, like, cringing. Um, he, was, he was a nice guy. Like, we stayed in touch. Um, not like that. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was funny because I think because I wasn't that confident, it took me a while to kind of loosen up. And, and then I think I was in it four weeks. And by week four, I was like, I'm enjoying this. I'm actually, you know, letting go a little bit. And then I got voted out that night. And I was just like, oh. <laughs> but it's still good memories, you know. It's, it's, it's like nothing I ever do in my normal life. So it's quite nice to have that, that variation. And your first TV work was on a shopping channel. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, the, so I know a little bit about this because was it in Acton? I did do some stuff in Acton. I did a casino channel in Acton as well. Because I remember in Acton there was a there was a studio in Acton that had all the kind of bid up TV and yeah, some of that. Yeah. 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 I did um, roulette. I did a DIY channels selling like cordless kettles, solar panel lights. I did the jewelry channel. Um, yeah, it was. I was just a blagger, to be honest, because I knew nothing <laughs> about DIY, gambling, or jewelry. Well, I went, I remember a, a story because I had a friend called Lisa from Newcastle that used to be on the shopping channels back then as well. And, um, I went to the studio one day to see what it was all about. So uh, I, I was there and she was having her makeup done and they, they pulled this trolley in and, and I was looking at the trolley and, and on the top of the trolley was a plastic um, owl, a bird, the owl, and it, in the middle of its tummy it had a, an alarm clock. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I looked at this owl. <laughs> when I looked at the owl and I picked it up and I looked at it and I picked it up, I'm like, well, Lisa, what's this? And she said, um, oh, I've got 4,000 of those to sell this morning. <laughs> and I was like, you're joking. But she was like, that, 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 yeah. And so she actually, but then it was my first foray into understanding kind of like television and, you know, because the, the, the way the studio works, it was almost like there was, there was a cross section and in each corner was a different thing being marketed and sold. And uh, she'd have the producer in her ear telling her jokes all the time while she's trying to keep serious uh, with the prices and whatnot. And so as, as I watched that, I was, I was really fascinated by it. I'd never done anything like that, but I was very fascinated by it. And so... And so knowing that you did that, I, I, I just imagine what it must have, how much fun it must have been because they all seem to laugh a lot. Yeah, I mean, it makes you work hard. I mean, the shopping telly stuff is a lot around targets and commission as well. So that, that's kind of salesy. But when I did like the casino channels, you would start work at 7 p.m. and you'd work till like 7 a.m. and you do like three hours on screen 
then you'd come off, redo your makeup, have a coffee, someone else would go on, then you'd like tag team with another presenter. Um, and it was just on a green screen under these boiling hot lights, just continuously talking and hosting. And I think you get paid 150 quid for it. You had to sort out your own tax, sort out your own NI, sort out your own travel. Um, and then you'd go home at like 7 a.m. You'd sleep for a little bit and then you'd have to set your alarm for like four or five hours, get up, um, do full hair and makeup, then go to all the auditions for other shows, other modeling work, other campaigns, and traipse around London with like an oyster using a bus pass. You'd have to take all your portfolio and your showreel under your arm because there was no like digital stuff then. Um, then come back home, sleep for a few more hours, exercise because you've got to keep in shape, then hair and makeup back on, then back to the studio. Um, so it's kind of like a weird existence. To it was like chasing your tail to try and get to your original dream. Yeah. I understand what you mean. Okay, talk to me. Uh, now, you've been in business for a while. You've got into real estate as well. Have you made any bad investment decisions along the way? I don't know. I mean, I probably not in terms of like losing money, but I suppose like, I realise now after what happened to me, I'm, I didn't invest enough in my health when I was young. So I would, you know, like that lifestyle of working all, all night, sleeping all day, then going clubbing. I would smoke, I would drink. And that kind of horrifies me now. You know, I ended up with, um, because of swallowing the acid, I ended up with shadow of the lung in my left lung, ended up with pneumonia and intensive care. So I would never ever smoke now. Um, and then e equally now I've made bad investments with my time where I've missed out on time with my kids because I've worked too much, you know, and I've, um, I, I got really ill because I was working really hard and I ignored symptoms and then I collapsed and didn't realize I had, um, sepsis, blood poisoning. And then I, that was only like a year ago. And my, my brother-in-law died of that four years ago. Yeah, so literally all I had was a normal water infection that you could just drink cranberry juice and like powders from the chemist for. I ignored the pain because my pain threshold's too off the wall. Um, and then I ignored it, ignored it, and it went into my bloodstream. And then I keep, kept ignoring the feelings of being unwell um, just because I'm too work obsessive. Um, and then when I collapsed and went in with sepsis, I was in hospital for like a week. My markers wouldn't go down, my infection markers. So I think I've made a bad investment in health over the years and, and not valued it enough, considering like what's happened to me. And again, that's about being ruled by fear, fear of stuff going away, being taken away, opportunity being lost again. Um, so lockdown has taught me I've got to invest more in my mental health and physical health. Um, and I don't always work for money. Like sometimes I work for free, especially with my charity. And if I'm not really like known in a certain area, I, you know, I still have to do stuff for free to get established. Um, so I have to be careful with my currency of time and make sure, you know, I used to think, well, I'm always here for my kids, but lockdown taught me I'm not emotionally here. So I'm here, but I'm rushing the bedtime story or I'm on my phone when they're in the room. Whereas if now life is a bit slower, my kids have even commented that I'm more emotionally present. Mm, nice. That's lovely. Okay, a couple of things before we finish, because I know we've taken a lot of time. Um, if you could go back again, okay, to your business journey since, since everything happened to you and the decisions you made along the way and give yourself some advice, business advice, and make a couple of better decisions, would there be any and what advice would you give? I don't really think I'm very good in business. Like I'm not particularly intelligent or academic. You know, I just kind of make it up and pretend I know what I'm doing. And sometimes it just pans out okay. We got the same parents. <laughs> um, I suppose 
like I'm not fearful as I don't, I'm not scared to take risk. And if I do lose money, like I'm not really wealthy, you know, it's not like I can afford to lose loads of money and throw it away. But if I lose money, I always feel like it doesn't hold the value people think it holds because going back to that thing of health being the most valuable currency. Um, so, so I think it's good that I, I take a lot of risk, but I, I think sometimes in the beginning of my career, I was not very boundaried and a real people pleaser. So I would say yes to everybody and I would do like crazy schedules of like, you know, going to work in Dubai and then counting my night's sleep as the plane and then getting off at Heathrow and going straight to do like a corporate talk or film. And I, I just look back on that and think, you didn't have to work that hard. <laughs> what were you doing? And I think it's because I spent all of my 20s in hospital. So in my 30s, I kind of tried to play catch up and I didn't really need to do that. Um, but it's only, it only took a global pandemic for me to kind of come to that realisation. Okay, last question for you. If a movie was made of your life, who would you want to star in your... In... I just sold the rights. It's happening. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, to my first book. I just sold the rights to my first book. So I'm just um, negotiating the contract now. Um, so I love Reese Weatherspoon. Um, she's, you know, she's a director now as well as an actress. She's got this brilliant book club. And she's pledged to make... Um, a certain amount of like uh, women, women's stories. You know, she's a feminist. She's about the empowerment of women. So I love her ethos and what she stands for. Um, but also in my film, I would like to have a cameo. You know, it's like my story, and who, who better to be in the final scene than myself? You know, don't look to other, to other people to be your mouthpiece. You can be that person. Would you Would you consider acting out your role? Not all of it, part like maybe the ending. Um, I'd actually did acting classes, but not to be an actress. Um, I had struggled a lot of confidence in the in the early stages. And for two years, I wore a Perspex mask as part of my treatment. And um, I, 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 I felt really embarrassed making eye contact with people. And it wasn't like a thing where people could tell me, oh, don't worry, no one notices, because people would shout horrible things at me in the street. People, I did face abuse, I got thrown out of shops. So it was a very real anxiety. Um, so I decided to go to acting classes where I would be forced to act out role plays, stand in front of people in large groups and, and that kind of that old school thing where people would have to pick to be partners with people and if no one would pick me, it would make me more robust and it was really good for me. Like I started that course, um, like not being able to make eye contact and not being able to give an opinion and always kind of just agreeing and nodding because I didn't want to speak. And by the end of the course, I was like fully able to communicate properly, be more assertive. Um, so don't ever just look at things of like, oh, do this course to get this or to be that or to become successful. Do things because you want to have like self-improvement. Do things because you value yourself. And if the outcome is the same as the, the input, okay, good. But that's just kind of a by-side luxury, not necessarily a necessity. Awesome. Okay. Have you enjoyed being on the show? I have. Yeah. It's been really good fun, actually. I mean, you're great. You're just so um, chilled. Like you made me feel at ease, which is nice because it doesn't, it doesn't feel too structured, which just makes, makes it feel more natural. Cool. Excellent stuff. And if you, when you come to Dubai next time, would you come and join me in person? Of course, definitely. Two meters, but definitely. <laughs> 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 at each end of the sofa i'm sure my audience over here would love 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 to see you so maybe we could set that up where we do it in a studio and we get them in to come and watch us and uh, have a bit of fun with that too actually do you know what's such a coincidence this 
week my affirmation book got translated into Arabic. Did it? So, what's the name of it? What, what, tell me what's the name of it? Um, it's, it's not a new book. It's one I wrote a while ago, but it's called Start Your Day with Katie. And it's, an, it's a positive affirmation for every day. So I read it out on Instagram every day. Um, so it's 365 positive quotes. Um, it's quite nice to buy for somebody else as a present, you know, if someone's going through, through a difficult time. Okay, good. So for all my Arabic listeners out there, guys, go check it out. Katie's there. Katie, how can people follow you? What's the best way for them to follow you? I am Instagram obsessed. I'm one of those annoying people that puts like their lunch up, their exercise up, their daily prayer up. Like, you know, I'm quite irritating, so maybe don't follow me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, on it, I'm on it all the time. And I'm at Katie Piper underscore. And that's the same handle for Twitter as well. Okay, awesome. Excellent stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got... Nothing more to ask, although I could ask loads more questions about loads of other stuff. But today we've had such a wonderful guest on the show and I urge you to go check out everything she's done. There's goodness knows what documentaries out there. There's TV presenting that she's done. She really has inspired millions of people and it'll be well worth your time. But just before we finish, Katie, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been so nice to hang out with you for a bit. Thanks for having me. Let's <laughs> go.